This is Coda Radio, episode 396 for January 11th, 2021. Well, hi there, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. So many career possibilities in the cloud, so little time. ACG's learning paths help you take the right course to prepare for architect, developer, security, and many more high-paying jobs. Get hired, get certified, get learning at cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our hostess with the Mac, it's Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Wait, hostess? Did I have a surgery I'm not aware of? Do you still have the M1 by any chance? Yes, I do. I just thought maybe it got sent back since we talked last. <laughs> no, well, no, you know what? This time, the love has stuck. Oh, oh, okay. Well, we're going to talk about that in the show today. Yeah. I do have some axes to grind first. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. First of all, why do we not have a shaman? Yeah, I know. You know what? We've been around way longer than the Q conspiracy theory. I want a dude in a Viking helmet with like Objective C brackets, like tattooed on his chest, wearing a robe. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> you know it's going to be robe bro, man. Come on. The robe bros were out in force this week. Hey, don't you besmirch the robe bros? No, I, I think it's a coup, frankly, by the robe. Uh... <laughs> they're overthrowing the power of the Coda Radio program, and they're we're we're pushing the robe agenda forward. There's no doubt about it. We're just going to become a show exclusively about robes. That's all it's going to be. Every week, we're going to get go to a hotel, get a robe, and be like, this is a little more uh, chintzy than last week. Fat Cat in the chat room says he's going to get a robe tattooed onto his entire body. That seems like the way to go, to be honest with you. I don't know how it works, so let us know, Fat Cat. Uh, I moved office spaces uh, this week. Not So, you know, the studio has two upstairs office spaces, and I moved to the other one. <laughs> but it was a nice chance to just redo everything, so I got myself a standing desk. Forever ago, to be honest with you, it's embarrassing how long ago I bought that, but never put it together. So I finally got that put together and had the help of uh, the wife and uh, family over helping me, you know, just move stuff and clean stuff up. Angela came over and helped uh, grab a few things and wrangle kids. And, it, you know, we just kind of got a, a big chunk of work done and I got myself a whole new workspace set up. It's really nice. It's like coming into a, a whole new work experience now. It's changing my game. I'm feeling the vibe. The new office vibe. I actually ordered a replacement standing desk, and every second that I'm on this very, very not strong enough to hold my computer Amazon Basics desk. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I th- Autonomous, I think, is the brand. Autonomous IO. That's the one that I bought, too. Mm-hmm. That's what I got. And so it's got four memory positions. And, um, I mean, really, everything's working pretty well, except for now I have to kind of redo my wiring setup because I need to get longer cables and stuff like that for the all the way up mode. And I think I want to mount the power uh, adapter, the power brick, you know, for all the plugs. I want to mount that to the wall, possibly. So, you know, I got to do things a little differently now. But for the first time, Mike, I'm investing in me. You know, I, I'm even I'm even getting myself get ready for this a desk stand for my MagSafe adapter. So I have an actual spot. And I can tidy the cord up. I, I mean, I'm go- that's how fancy I'm getting. That is pretty fancy. I'm going to have like a metal pedestal for my phone. I just set it down and it charges. I'm done with the wires all over the place and the pucks all over the place. Looking like Doc Brown's desk or something. I'm done with that. You know? Feel like uh, feel like I'm a gentleman now. I got a gentleman desk. I got one of them big mouse pads too. So like the whole thing's down, you know? I have to tell you, working on this little desk, I understand what 
dark matter developers must feel like. It's like I have literally, it, this is the worst thing ever. If I move my hand slightly the wrong way, something is spilling into this iMac Pro, which frankly is what it deserves because it's just trounced by the M1. But it was still $5,000. How are you getting the angle of the spillage? Because the iMac, it's not like, I see a laptop, that's a target because the most vulnerable components are laying just right there on the table. You could easily knock something into the keyboard, which spills into the main board and it's dead. But an iMac, that's like up on a foot, you know, it's, it's way harder to get the beverages to the really important components. You really got to aim. You doubt my ability to destroy Apple equipment. No. <laughs> it seems like a bad. I think what it is is I'm just trying to fantasize how you're going to pull it off. Like it, like a ricochet or you were stacking shelves and and maybe there was like a beverage up there that the kid set that you didn't even know was there and the shelf falls and it falls inside. The drink comes off the shelf and pours into the iMac. Just do a little flare bartending and like miss. <laughs> which ha- which is probably happening all the time at your place, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, not anymore, but <laughs> those were the days. Uh, okay, well, we so we got a lot of feedback. I mean, a lot of feedback. And so if your email doesn't make it into this show, it may make it into the next one. But we did ask people a little bit about their setups. And now I'm really curious because they just redid mine. And it really came down to like, man, if I'm going to redo my desk and I have to pull everything out of here anyways – Maybe I should just move rooms where it's got a better view. It's got airflow. Um, you know, it was a it was a big setup. So then people are starting to write in and tell me about their setups. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll do that. So Eric wrote in with his setup for uh, he's a statistician and a software developer by day. I think he dabbles with R. And he said for work, uh, I use a 2018 MacBook Pro. And he does sometimes have a choice. He has a choice between that or severely locked down Windows. So you know. <laughs> Might as well go with the Mac. He does some uh, day work with MacBook and Docker containers and VS Code. They mostly use Office 365. He has a persistent TMUX session going on all the time, logged into some of their nodes with a web-based IDE called RStudio Server. But he's been starting to use VS Code a lot more with a remote extension for personal projects at home. And I love this. It allows him to, you know, like modify Docker and stuff like that remotely. But then he took it to the next level, Mike. And you may already know about this. But I wanted to mention it for the audience in case you didn't know is what Eric is kind of migrating to and I have set up at home and love it is VS Code in a web browser. And it's it's code server, it's open source, and it's essentially VS Code in a tab. And it's just so handy to like throw that up on a Linode or on like a local server that I have in the RV where I don't use it super often because I prefer to have VS Code local. But every now and then I'm on a machine and it's just nice to have a centralized editor and you can even edit local files on your server if you set it up particularly the way i have it (laughs) so are there i guess there would be performance implications because it's literally an electron app right so yeah it's really kind of cool i keep wanting this to be a thing i I, and someone's gonna have to correct me but i think it was cloud nine yeah years ago we talked like like Mm -hmm. way when we were first talking about docker with this whole idea that like you're, you know, you'd go back to the eighties, right? Your terminal would be just like a really, you know, that $800 laptop from Best Buy and your IDE would live in the cloud. This is kind of that dream. Only it's now it's VS code. Yeah. Cause I guess all my extensions would actually just work, right? Cause it's just running on another Ubuntu box or if you're, you know, have taste Sousa. <laughs> By the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I happened to be listening to a certain unplugged podcast yeah. uh, of, of the Linux variety. Uh-huh. Anything you'd like to share? 
Well, yeah, I was running Sousa in secret for a week. I got to admit, I was doing that. Uh, I, I, I felt like it would derail the show, so I didn't mention it. And then afterwards, I thought, huh, you know, maybe I, you know, once, I probably should have just brought it up. But, you know, I got to say, it was all right. It wasn't, it wasn't great. I, I, unlike probably you, I I find yes to be a vestige of years gone past. Well, you really want to use zipper though. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know, but I'm just talking about for configuring the system in general. All right. I, I actually am not a huge fan of zipper either. I definitely like it more than something like RPM or apt RPM or, or something like that. But I, I, I think these days it's probably of like, say, Arch, Debian, Red Hat varieties. It's probably my, and then you throw Seuss in there, it's probably my least favorite package manager of that group. Okay. I mean, I, I will say there are niceties in Apt that I miss. It just seems slow, too. Really slow to do any zipper. It just really seems like I'm really waiting for the package manager. Mm, there's a lot of steps in zipper that I, I think, you know. I kind of started to kind of hone in on the aspect I could really see liking about SUSE, and that would be leap on my server, tumbleweed on my laptop and desktop. Yep. And that kind of that kind of idea does resonate with me a lot. And, you know, long term, I think they've made some some clever choices in some areas. So it's like all things with Linux. It's kind of pick your set of compromises and your sets of wins, really. Is that another way to say half broken? Oh, see. Well, I think what I prioritize is simple, minimal, and whenever possible, built in. So yeah. if there's a way to just do a, a way to do something that system D just does it already or, or what, like I prefer to go that route. Uh, yeah. Like one of the reasons it's silly, but we, we talk about it on plugged. We actually chose to run Arch Linux on our server here in the studio. And it's actually kind of an important stu- uh, server to us, but everything with the exception of net data and Samba, everything runs in a container. And so we keep Arch on an LTS kernel, and we update it semi-frequently, and really everything that we need is taking place in Docker. And what I love about the setup is it is a minimum viable server. It doesn't have anything extra. It doesn't have any additional packages. It literally has just what you need to get that environment functional. And so it has a really low maintenance surface because of that. And it has a it's just kind of secure by default. And it feels like with SUSE, it's kind of the kitchen sink distro. Um, you know, even the way you download it, they've got like the 4.2 gig DVD image, or do you want the net install, or do you want the fi- i586 optimized, or the x64 optimized images, and all of that just sort of feels kind of like the old school baked in approach of Linux, and there are advantages to it. I prefer the minimum distro kind of thing myself for servers. If you're playing the Code Radio drinking game, we've had Robros, Sousa, Lizards, Arch, and Docker. Rust. 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 And R. And by the way, Eric, I believe, is the host of the R podcast. Very good. You should go listen to it. You are probably suffering from alcohol poisoning right now. So, <laughs> sorry. All right, yeah, if you're taking up. shots, the Coda Radio drinking game, you're getting wrecked. Oh, oh and Objective-C. <laughs> I forgot hey, go that. throw that in there. And the M1. Did you say that? Because if you didn't... I did. Two shots for the M1. Oh, and I said something insulting about Linux. So, that there we go. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about uh, a dev living the M1 lifestyle right now. Kent writes in, says, hey, guys, uh, responding to your question in the last week's show. I work at an education company, and currently I'm building a new website to replace the in-person training they used to do. Well, because of COVID, obviously. My dev machine of choice is the M1 MacBook Air with 16 gigabytes of RAM and a 35-inch external monitor. 
It's the ultra-wide 3440 by 1440 resolution. Because the company wants to integrate with their WordPress and WooCommerce site, I'm working in PHP for the back end. But building out a front end for a section of the WordPress site with Flutter Web, eventually this code will be reused to also launch mobile apps for Android and iOS. And he says, by the way, sign me up for two robes, one for me and one for the lady. <laughs> I love it, Kent. You got it. Two robe bros. <sighs> <laughs> It's so good. It's I, I like I, I just I you know I had an intuitive moment with the audience. I just struck a chord with them. Morgan writes in with a quick rundown of their setup. You mentioned wanting to know a little bit about our setups. Well, my main programming language is Go Bash, and I work with Terraform and Ansible. A little bit of Podman and K8s is in there too, with WireGuard connecting everything using Fedora and CentOS Stream now, working good. And then we use systemd with a bit of bash glue to tie it all together. I'm split between maintaining our Linux distribution, managing the cloud component of our product, and then, of course, keeping our infrastructure for our factory working and hacking on the code bases for these different projects and sending it upstream when possible. He's working at a place, or they're working at a place called holopot.com, H-O-L-O-P-Plot.com, in case I'm ready to replace my home pods with something more pro. And I checked out their site, and holy shit. Holopot plot. Sorry, I keep messing that up. It's H O L O P L O T dot com. Um, looks incredible, like incredible speakers. Yeah, you got to go look. They're, they're we had a few people write in. Uh, somebody wrote in with a solution on how to use Homebrew on ARM and Intel, depending on which version you want, with only one terminal uh, using different uh, environment variables or something. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if people are interested. Yeah, that was an interesting approach. I think your approach is just simpler and easier to. Well, the only thing that's a annoying with my approach is i wish i could set a different visual profile for like rosetta terminal and uh why aren't you using iterm i mean you've had a week give it a go come on it's a better terminal than the mac os terminal i tell you what okay why why is it better first of all it just looks a little bit better it has a lot more configuration options and it has the themes that you're looking for and i what i like about it now you don't have to do it this way but it uh, you can even set it as sort of like that drop-down Quake terminal-style terminal. You can actually – there's lots of guides to configure iTerm like that. So you can hit a key on your keyboard and just drops down from the top of your screen. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. As we do the rest of the feedback, I will live install it. How about that? I really like the iTerm layout that I have. So you might like it. I think it is pretty good. I mean, in theory, that would solve my problem because then like iTerm could just be like – because the, the little dirty secret is I'm almost always in Rosetta Terminal because – the dirty secret is, I'm always angry. <laughs> the dirty secret is, I use a lot of Ruby gems and Python packages that are not compiled for ARM. We also got a tip that you can switch to the uh, Visual Studio Code Insider builds, which I guess are, are are starting to support the M1. It wasn't super clear from the feedback, but I guess if you get an, if you get the Insider builds, you get M1 support. That might be something to think about, too. So, of course, some setups, you know, some setups aren't as swanky as the M1. Josh writes in, he says, I work as a system admin, primarily in a Windows environment. I've been doing a lot of PowerShell scripting, and PowerShell Linux is a different bag than in Windows. You know, things like AD integration, registry edits, etc. When I'm not in the office on my Windows machine, I have a ThinkPad T440P running Fedora 33, and I have Windows 10, and I have... Uh, Server VMs, I, I'm guessing he probably means Windows Server VMs with VS Code for development. One thing that I noticed is that I really end up spending more time in the VMs than on my host machine. 
So I said, I felt like my environment was just kind of unique and janky enough that I wanted to share it all. <laughs> and, and then devastatingly adds, I also want to throw some shade on the robe bros. I just perked right up. <laughs> <laughs> the only people I know who wear robes are my 60 plus year old parents inappropriate well actually if you live in the south there are some other people who wear robes but you definitely don't want to hang out with them god <laughs> i feel like our feedback is uh speaks speaks for itself there are robe bros out there we are proud robe, robe bros also includes ladies i will mention uh and uh we are uniting and we are going to change the agenda and it's not just men it's not just women it's even those tiny humans reese writes in very short and simple I'm 13 years old, and I want a robe. Hashtag robe bros. So thank you, Reese. All right. All right. Stop corrupting the youth. I, <laughs> this has gone way too far. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, it speaks to the people. It speaks. It speaks to the people. You're going to have a riot on your hand if you don't come <laughs> up with robes. <laughs> you know, I think robes are going to bring peace. Because you know what? When you're wearing a robe, you're comfortable. And who wants to riot when they're comfortable? So last week, that's what we needed. <laughs> Come into JB Studios. We got we got we got robes, cannabis, and uh, and scotch, and you just sit back and listen to a podcast. Yeah, I feel like the robes are not the operative functioning things there. <laughs> so, I appreciate Reese uh, lodging their vote, and uh, I love that we have thirteen year old listeners too. So we have a few more setups. I just want to blast through really quick. Like I said, there's a whole bunch set in, uh, sent in, and um, if you don't hear yours here, I'll, I may cover it. Next week, or I may just reply directly back to you. Before I do that, I want to mention that a cloud guru has the Red Hat Certified System Administrator exam prep. In this course, they cover the skills and concepts necessary to pass the Red Hat RHCSA exam using a mix of lessons and hands-on labs. They tie it all together with a challenge lab that really helps you test your skills. So if you're looking at getting Red Hat Certified, check out the link in the show notes and get started at cloudguru.com or go specifically to this course with the link that we'll have in our show notes. It's a Cloud Guru's Red Hat Certified System Administrator exam prep. The best way to learn is by doing. So more feedback. This one is a AWS stack from Paul. Hey there, just writing it with my typical dev stack. By day, I specialize in AWS and serverless technologies. All of our APIs are deployed to AWS Lambda and written in ExpressJS. We use a combination of DynamoDB and Aurora Serverless for our databases. Our front ends are written in Vue.js or Angular, depending on the developer. And for mobile, we leverage Sumerian forms. Outside of the day job, I write my games in either straight C or minimal C++ and OpenGL and SDL. And sometimes I'll pair it with a little good old C Sharp and mono game. That's Paul on the AWS Lambda stack. In fact, you know, Mr. Dominic, we got a handful of people using AWS so I kind of condensed them down into Paul's email, but that setup, you know, some sort of JavaScript framework, AWS, serverless, probably mentioned three or four times by people that sent in emails, which that's uh, kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, uh, last year I briefly did a project on uh, Lambda using F Sharp, believe it or not. It was, it's one of those things that was so straightforward in terms of getting it set up that it's almost, we didn't really cover it too much, but I mean, it, it's exactly what it says on the tin, right? It's a serverless thing. It turns on, runs your functions, you know, data in, da all I was doing is data in, data out. You know what it is about iTerm, I just realized? Not to jump around like a maniac. Uh, the developers wear robes when they code. <laughs> How did you know? 
<laughs> uh, You're a little feels, predictable. It feels like a Linux terminal on Mac OS. It feels like the configuration you get with a Linux terminal emulator. So Susan wrote in with a really solid Arch setup. Susan from Nepal. Uh, they said that they've been listening to the show for quite some time and really love it. In regards to the question we asked about people's uh, work setups and their stack, uh, their development machine is a six-year-old Asus laptop but it's held up really well. It's a fourth gen i7, 16 gigs of RAM, an NVIDIA 950M in there, and it just keeps working. The dedicated graphics was a total waste of money as I haven't played a single game on this machine in about about 12 years, she says. Yeah, I I know, right? Uh, The project we're working on our company is large and takes some time to build, around five minutes. So instead of buying a new powerful machine, we refactor the entire application into modules and leverage that to reduce the build time significantly. Hmm. Now, the build time is in for the different modules between 5 to 40 seconds in general. The OSs that uh, they've hopped through are Linux Mint and Kali and Ubuntu, but in the last few years have settled on Arch. It's only broken once. That was uh, for Kernel 5.9 and an Intel video driver, but they quickly found the solution on the form. And other than that, it's really simple, lightweight. That combined with, uh, he says, uh, or they say, uh, they were na- they were. A, a GNOME fanboy, but they were having annoying problems where the display would stutter from time to time and just like, you know, little issues, little paper cuts on GNOME, switched over to Plasma, never looked back since then. So the Arch Plasma setup has been totally rocking for them and rock solid, super smooth, uses less resources without compromising features uh, and uh, makes for a great workstation. And I just love that, you know, to get Susan's take from Nepal and the idea of these, sometimes we talk about these absolute latest machines. This is a 12-year-old laptop running Arch, and she's getting perfectly good performance from it and working, getting the day job done. And the approach, in, instead of throwing more hardware at it, was to break the application up into modules and then build the modules as needed, which go much faster, <laughs> which is totally, totally a valid approach. Yeah, that's that's not that crazy at all. Probably easier for maintenance long term as well. So that's also a win when when doing that. Uh, okay, this is the last one. Last one we have for this episode. We have a batch for next week too. But Mike wrote in and uh, after selling his company and sticking around for a while and kind of getting the, the bonus for sticking around, they kicked off what they thought would be a four-month project. They're now 14 months into it. <laughs> <laughs> They're using AWS, Lambda, DynamoDB, uh, Elasticsearch, S3, of course, CloudWatch. Uh, for the CICD, they're using Code Pipeline and Code Build. Their infrastructure as code is Terraform running in the Terraform cloud. Go on the server side with some JavaScript and Java where there's existing third-party libraries that are superior and available. They use, and this is something I wanted to ask, but they use Go's built-in unit testing capabilities. Side note, I think that's the question for next week's episode. How do you test? Is it old school? Is it manual? You're not testing. You have very specific methodology for building and testing. Coder.show slash contact. How do you test? I'd love to know that. Uh, but here's the interesting thing that Mike says. My development machine is the XPS 13, uh, the 9380 version, usually docked to a Dell UltraSharp 27 4K monitor, JetBrains for the IDE, uh, and SmartGit for Git interactions. Serverless uh, has been great. Switching to serverless has zero regrets for doing so and uh, follows the latest best practices and uh, uses the right CI and CD tools for each deployed environment. And uh, they love it. He says, I'd love to hear what people are doing for unit testing. I've grown increasingly dependent on my unit tests to confidently make changes in, in my platform. 
I'm approaching 4,000 unit tests across my code bases. I recently upgraded from Angular 9 to 11. It took me about an hour, and that included patching a few issues I discovered thanks to my tests. I couldn't imagine doing it without the tests. I, I think it's a great question that Mike brings up. Mike, uh, listener Mike, how do you test? Let us know. Coder.show slash contact. Yeah, testing is one of those things. You're never going to be where you need to be on it. You know, and it bites you in all forms, too, because there's also not just – there's not just – this is the one that bit me is my 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 environment. I updated my environment, and that broke. And so then production – and a production application broke, and I didn't realize it um, because I forgot to test the underlying platform stuff. I just tested the application. So that you know, you're always learning. It feels that's that has to be. I think I think the the mindset is I'm just going to keep evolving this all the time. It's like a checklist that I have for the RV. I've been driving that RV now for like five years, and I still from time to time add up. Oh, I need to start checking this. In fact, I'm not kidding you. Last night I had a nightmare that I forgot to check something, and I was driving down the road with my awning sticking out. <laughs> that's when I woke up. <laughs> I woke up like crap. Did I? Okay, it was just a dream. <laughs> See, if you if you were wearing a robe, you never would have uh, made that mistake. No, right? Because you have one robe for when you're lounging and one robe for when you're road ready. Obviously. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, there is room for a multi-robe lifestyle. No doubt about it. If your winter robe, your evening robe, and your combat robe. Well, you clearly have to. I mean, you don't want to wear your winter robe in the summer. You wouldn't be comfortable, and the robe's all about being comfortable. You can't wear a white robe after Labor Day, so. And not be a gentleman. And, you know, sometimes it's special night with the ladies. You want to have a nice red velvet robe. I mean, you might. I don't know. Maybe you don't. Uh, It's more black velvet. I'm with you so far. Linode.com slash coder. Go there and receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. Linode is the largest independent cloud for developers. They're our cloud hosting provider for Jupyter Broadcasting. Right now, as we are doing this show, I'm streaming on a brand new Jupyter.tube PeerTube instance hosted on Linode. And here's what's great about it. is on the back end, I'm using Linode's object storage to store the videos. So when we post a video on there... It goes through all the various different encoding styles that you need for like mobile and low resolution and HD, and then it stores them on object storage in Linode. And the reason why that is fantastic is not only are those files now available via URL if we want to link to them directly, and it means they download super quick and they load up in the player super quick, but it means we don't have to like carve off like a terabyte of block storage and then use like 300 gigs and know that, okay, well, maybe in like six months we might be using 700 gigs, so we better go for a terabyte. Like you don't have to do any of that. With object storage, you just use it as you need it, and it's super easy to get access to it because it's all S3 compatible. And Linode costs 30 to 50% less than major cloud providers like AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure. You get a nice balance of technology and price, and you, you can get something for like $5 a month. What I did for our PeerTube instance is I, I first, we tried it at the, just like a two-core machine, four gigs of RAM, and did a proof of concept. We ran that for about 24 hours. We got an idea of what we wanted and maybe what we might change, and then we just nuked that one, and we just set up a new one in the production data center we wanted to deploy on. And this time, I went for something with four CPU cores, so that way we can render video that gets uploaded and leave a couple of cores available for live streaming. And it's all set up and it's ready to go in seconds. And if you want to get a gaming server going, they have all of the options right in there to set up a lot of popular game servers, like a like a Minecraft server, for example, or or an Arc server, or, or many others. And they have a lot of the options you might want for the game server, but like 
maybe it's a creative world versus survival or any kind of mod settings you might want. They're all in the setup for you right there in an easy-to-click use interface, and then you hit deploy, and you got your own custom server. So if you want to use it for your business like we do, or you just want to use it for a personal site or service, get started by going to lenote.com slash coder. Get that $100 60-day credit towards a new account, and you support the show. Helps this uh, humble podcast stay free. Lenode.com slash coder. So there's some hoopla <laughs> this week. Uh, I, I, I'm a little worried that we're touching the third rail on this one because there's uh, there is just so much going on right now where world news is getting into tech and one kind of hit close to home since we get, we're on the air. JetBrains really went under the magnif- magnifying scope thing. Uh, what do you call it? Microscope. Microscope, thank you. JetBrains got kind of called out in a way for potentially being like a backdoor for Russian hackers and really got a lot of FUD thrown at it. Yeah, well, uh, that, that was brought to us by a little bull****. So. And the New York Times, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, they said there that Russian hackers may have piggybacked on a tool developed by JetBrains, which is based in the Czech Republic, to gain access to federal government and private sector systems, you know, all the solar winds. They say American intelligence agencies and private cybersecurity investigators are examining the role of the widely used company JetBrains in a far-reaching Russian hacking. Uh, officials are investigating whether the company, founded by three Russian engineers in the Czech Republic, with research labs in Russia, were breached and used as a pathway for hackers to insert back doors into the software JetBrains said on Wednesday that it was not aware of any investigation at all, nor is it aware of any compromise, <laughs> and that the team is uh, trying to get more information from the FBI. Does this have anything to do with Russia? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and you know, it's it's unnamed U.S. officials, it's unnamed cybersecurity experts, and they say things like security experts warn that months-long intrusion could be the biggest breach of the United States network in history. But that's like, well, yeah, okay, if all this is true and they compromise systems and they were in for a month or three, then, yeah, it'd be a really big deal. But they throw that in there as if it's already true, like as if it's already happened. It, it's it's bull****. So gather around, children. When you are hosting software yourself that you buy from a vendor – such as, I don't know, Team Cities, a popular solution that JetBrain sells. And you do not update said software, or you are not managing your hosting right. That can be a problem. I have a huge issue here, because the way the story was reported, it makes it sound like like the JetBrain's, like their updating tool or whatever was completely compromised, all the solar winds, right? Not the case. What it looks like, and you know, no one's going to confirmed this yet but i'm hoping that at some point they do is that there were at least one potentially more unpatched out of date improperly configured team city instances um, that were being self-hosted by various customers and that is a vector for compromise just like if you have an unpatched out of date wordpress instance on a server somewhere right so this is nonsense it's nuanced because um, it involves understanding that software can be created by a company and deployed by a user incorrectly and then be used as a vector of attack. And if you don't understand that nuance, it just looks like, well, JetBrain sells a bad product. 
Right. You have to understand that if a customer is hosting a vendor software and managing it themselves, that they are ultimately responsible for the security of said software. Yeah, and I actually think that's the biggest disservice by kind of labeling all of this as nation-state attacks. It sort of reduces the responsibility of the sysadmins that set that up in the first place. Like, that's on them. They set that up incorrectly, and it didn't really take somebody with sophistication. It took somebody who was willing to crawl the web. And uh, I, when I saw this, what my first thought was is, how, how does this impact a guy like Mike who maybe has clients who know he uses these tools? Do you worry about it hurting your reputation by association? I actually took to Twitter, as one does these days, because I was pretty concerned, right? Because we use RubyBind, we use PyCharm, it's, we're basically a Jeopardy shop. We actually don't use TeamCity, though, <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, it's it's not great, right? I don't, you know, is it going to make us dramatically change our tooling? No. Um, VS Code is slowly but surely making us do that. Yeah, I mean, if I was using TeamCity, I think I might be more concerned. Having said that, now that they're, you know, publicly in caps and red letters with the hammer and sickle next to it, publicly known to like non-people in the industry as a Russian company, which they are not, from the Czech Republic, different country, uh, that maybe isn't great. Having said that, a lot of my clients, particularly those in like regulated industries, also are JetBrains customers, so... Mm. You know, if you're doing Java, you're probably wanting, you're at least looking at IntelliJ. It may be that their brand and reputation withstands this, but... Yeah, I, I think they, they're they going to get some crap from, like, people... Like, honestly, stupid congressmen who are going to want to, like, grandstand, right? Yeah, I, I hope I hope there's nothing to be concerned about. I, I guess I'd be lying if I didn't say now I kind of have, like, a bit of doubt about the company. Like, just a little bit of, hmm... You know, okay, like I'm going to kind of keep my eye on them now. And I think that's super unfortunate because they don't deserve that. Before that, their actions so far had, had really, you know, what they've done is they've made a good product and they've charged for that product. And that seems like it's been a pretty good business model. So maybe this will blow over, I hope. I don't think it's going to really affect them. I mean, it might, I could see it maybe affecting like the Team City line, which I, sure. I don't mean to downplay that. I know that's a big product for them, which is not the way I run my process. So not something I'm interested in. I mean, I just, just like from my own experience, switching the entire IDE infrastructure and the plugins and all the custom crap you probably written for them for your entire company based on one very shoddily reported New York Times article, that sounds expensive and bad. So, okay, now the other thing that's obviously going on right now that has huge ramifications for our industry is Parler, as we recorded now is offline. Uh, I'm not really familiar with it, but I know it's a social network that's like an alternative to Twitter that uh, has gotten famous for a lot of well-known people on the right to switch to it after Twitter had started fact-checking or whatever. And, you know, this whole thing has all kind of been going down for the last couple weeks. If you want more context, you can always check out Unfiltered, unfiltered.show. But there's been a lot of changes. A lot of things have been happening very fast. And sometimes, you know, I think for the better, and some I think have have been sort of like, oh, boy, now the genie's out of the bottle on that one. And and AWS pulling the plug on Parler, that was a moment where I went, oh, whoa. Well, that feels like a whole other level. Did you get that sense? So I got to be honest with you, I didn't know what the hell Parler was until this week. Um, yeah. <laughs> they went from being famous to offline in about a week. <laughs> and, and I just want to like make sure I understand. It's effectively... Twitter, right? 
but like with no rules. Right, right. Well, I don't know. I really don't know about that, but uh, I I know that it's been like promoted as like the free speech social media or whatever, which of course attracts all kinds, right? The question that I had after this happened is, is it's one thing, right, if Twitter says, okay, we're going to close your account because that's their service. Well, AWS, that's really kind of become like the infrastructure of the internet. That's a whole other level. And a lot of dominoes fall after that. So, it, but it wasn't AWS first, right? It was the App Store, I think, right? Right. Google Play and then the App Store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then like Dio preemptively came out and said they wouldn't host them. Yep. So like, there's a lot of weirdness here, right? There's a lot of reporting that like maybe the guy who founded Parler's wife is a Russian spy. Oh, Russian? Uh, Russian. Huh. And this makes me want to talk about honey traps for a minute. You have Unfilter. We have this. I have my company. Where are these Russian women for us, Chris? Where were they when we needed them? Where is our honey trap money is what you're saying? Right. You want the you want the girl and the investment in rubles. I mean, Jupiter Broadcasting is a podcast network, has a reach that far exceeds many very popular magazines. You know, somebody ought to be in here, you know, getting some propaganda in this. We got a platform. But no. None of that Putin money. Shh. Just like a little gas prof cash. Yeah, they got tons of oil money, man. Come on. They got so much oil money that they used to build nuclear powered lighthouses. Have you looked that up? Have you seen that on YouTube? No, that's nuts. One of these days, you should look up nuclear-powered lighthouses. Blow your mind what they were doing. I mean, so come on. So send a little bit our way, would you? But I agree. What I find to be interesting is the details that have come out now that Parler is suing Amazon. It kind of Because in the lawsuit, it sheds a little bit of light on Amazon's rationale for banning Parler. They say, this is according to Amazon, the team said that it was troubled by repeated policy violations. The email cited 98 posts that incited violence. It included screenshots of a call to hang traders, as well as exoneration to start systematically assassinating liberal leaders and supporters of the Black Lives Movement Matter and others in January. Uh, Amazon said publicly they cannot provide services to a customer that is unable to effectively identify and remove content that encourages or incites violence. I mean, if that, you know, that kind of that kind of stuff, like, okay, well, where does Amazon draw the line? Maybe that is where they should be drawing the line. But it was just still kind of surprising. I mean, obviously, all that stuff is gross, right? Yeah. Like, I don't, I, there's no defense for it. But I do wonder, like, if you're, if you're a small startup and you're doing some kind of platform, does that mean, like, if you just, like, fail to moderate your platform because you're, like, three guys in a dorm room, AWS is going to kick you off if you get big enough? I think it definitely means that now. I mean, because I feel like, I mean, I don't think any of that stuff is good. And This climate will make it such that any service that is centralized is vulnerable like that. Well, mm-hmm. well, that's problematic. I mean, we think of Twitter as like the strongly, you know, kind of like woke moderated platform. Back in the day, Twitter was a garbage pit. Good point. Remember Twitter porn, which yeah. is still a thing, but it was like people were doing revenge porn and like harassment of girlfriends and boyfriends. You're right. If you actually look at the whole history of Twitter, it may have been more of a garbage platform for longer than it's been a woke, politically correct platform. Right. And then it just, you need money to f- like moderate this crap, right? Like that's... Well, and, and they want to sell ads. Well, but like you, at some point, moderation requires actual moderators and humans are expensive. That's my point. Mm-hmm. So like, I wonder if this is the standard, which I kind of am coming dangerously close to saying this shouldn't have happened, which I kind of don't agree with, because if you're calling for political assassinations, that's obviously not good and potentially a crime. But 
could you make a new Twitter in a dorm room or a new Facebook in a dorm room and actually satisfy these requirements in a realistic way? The reason why I say no is because this isn't where it ends. Okay, where does it go? It's an evolving issue. Not only is allowed speech an evolving and usually narrowing issue, but I really kind of am concerned about other issues that don't seem that impossible. I could see even within 2021, it comes up a pretty big debate about the U.S. law requiring backdoors and encryption. It was something that the Obama administration fought for really hard. It was something that, I mean, you can find tons of uh, James Comey on YouTube talking about it. And I could see the issue, too. If, if radicalization in the U.S. is becoming a bigger and bigger problem, then the need to get access to these private communications is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. And so what happens when a service refuses to do that? And, and what is going to be sort of the system's response to that? And so just like you may have to moderate or else you're going to be held liable, you're also likely going to have to, pro- to meet legal requirements when it comes to encryption to operate in the U.S. That's also going to tighten the noose a little bit. I mean, so that's just, ex- that's just one example of how the goalpost will always be moved because society is always, always moving. So, so you kind of get down to the argument of things change whatever you have to change with them but do you let the market decide that and like you just fail if your platform sucks well i mean you feel you figure if this is if this becomes the new normal it will create demand for something that's not censored it will create demand for something not if you can't host it anymore well yeah or you have to use the tools like you have to build your own system you have to build your own email server you have to host that yourself you have to build your own e-commerce pl- platform yeah but that, that's that's such a lift i mean but it is easier than ever you know true there's a lot of packages out there or docker images or you know i mean there's a lot of options out there see i'm i'm very of two minds on this i don't like obviously what i've seen of parlor is probably the worst of it right because it's right when it got taken down yeah but i have no problem with like a private business saying hey because i think you guys are you know unacceptable i would use a different word but we're, we, we're not going to serve you anymore you you know we're not a public utility and you, you like if i just like fired a client because whatever or i refuse to take a client because of whatever it's i think when you get into cases like it's it's less the aws one it's more the app store one that kind of mm. bothers me a little bit because it's like there is no other way to develop on that platform. Yeah. Well, the web, but yeah. Yeah, but you're you're gimped in a lot of ways, right? Well, and, and, and history has shown us, specifically with social media platforms, people want a native local app. Well, because they want to do photos, they want to do filters, and it's possible, but it's never going to be as good of an experience. But again, like, I wish it wasn't Parler. Do you know what I mean? It, it would be easier to kind of get on my heels and be like, you know, like when Hey.com got like pushed around by Apple, that that was easy, right? Right. This is like, well, you guys actually did like a way, way over any reasonable line, you know. So I don't know. I I sort of miss, and this is where we're going to be a little, you and I are going to pour one out for sun. <laughs> I sort of miss the ideal of like the 90s when like the internet was becoming a thing and people were just going to develop their software, man, and you download the member shareware, and it'd be great, and we'd be happy. 
And you'd have like a million little dev shops doing all these crazy things. And there'd be like news groups that would specifically be like for these types of people in software that really geek out about this particular thing in computers. And that was great. I actually still have a very active Usenet connection. <laughs> do you really? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, although I don't quite use it for the same thing anymore. But I, I do follow what you mean. Um, and also, I, I guess this is me being an old man, but um, I yearn for a time before Twitter. Yeah. Like, things were so much better in a lot of ways. Just slowing the pace of conversation and allowing time for thought and deliberation and not creating a discourse where your goal is to get as many likes and retweets as possible so you're always turning the dial up so that way you always are getting people engaged. I think it just brings out the worst in people. It's negative incentives, right? You're all it's like I look at my own stats because I'm a oh, I see I'm an attention enthusiast. I was going to say something else there. And it's it's just true like if I can say something mean about Linux that like triples engagement. If I say something nice about Linux, it doubles it. If I say something negative about Apple, forget about it. I can't even keep up with the notifications. That's so true. That's like, yes, for sure, yes. Yes, and if we really wanted to play the game, we'd intentionally say something incendiary about Linux or Apple, and then we'd cut it, and we'd clip it, and then we'd post that as a standalone bite on Twitter and blast it out. Off to the races, right. Yeah. And that's what people do. It's it's just uh, all right. Well, so let's let's shift gears to a little bit of tech because uh, in your M1 endeavors, one of the things we were talking about last week specifically was the state of Docker and not being ready for the M1 platform. I, I guess have you had any more experiences with trying to get Docker working on that sucker? Or has the situation improved? So there is a development release of a Docker version for the M1. Oh, okay, it's still in dev mode. It's it's not there yet, but. You know, like we talked about when this M1 first came out, this is going to be a problem that Docker is going to solve pretty quickly. Yes, sure. sure. I would bet my hat in 60 days we're not talking about this anymore. That seems pretty aggressive. But um, so do you know, like, are they must be doing some sort of VM, right? They must be doing some sort of... They have to move over to Apple's new hypervisor is the problem. Which, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, maybe it's totally flushed out, but you got to wonder, like, what's the... How complete of a product... How solid is just that? Because it seems like those are that's new plumbing for the OS to begin with. And <laughs> it may be one of those things that needs a little bit of iteration itself. But uh, it is interesting to see that they're just plugging away at it. I'm just I was just going through it. Yeah, it looks and it looks like they're getting a pretty good amount of engagement too. So it's gonna it'll get there, won't it? You're probably right. I don't know. You the only thing I think your prediction's just a, a little optimistic. If that new set of virtualization APIs in macOS ends up being kind of half baked, then uh, there's really not, it's kind of out of Docker's hands. There's nothing they can do. I would be very surprised if that's the case. Because remember, people want to run Windows on Mac too in VMs. And that's like a core feature for them. Datadog.com slash coder radio. Datadog is the unified monitoring and analytics platform that gives you comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi cloud environments. The key is you can really quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers and applications in real time. You get customizable dashboards that are beautiful. You should go to datadog.com slash radio just to kind of get an idea of what the UI is like. But the nice thing is, is these dashboards give you the ability to do all kinds of things like troubleshoot issues in seconds, get a unified view of your metrics, your traces, your logs all in one place. 
And they have just turnkey integrations for over 400 different technologies. And you can use Datadog to say monitor your Linux boxes, the containers and the applications inside them, and then pull in metrics and other data from the rest of your entire stack across multiple clouds to get visibility and health into the performance of your entire infrastructure and applications. So do this. Get started by going to datadog.com slash radio. Start a free trial, create a dashboard, and Datadog will send you a t-shirt. Yep, that's awesome. It's a nice-looking T-shirt, too. You see it when you go to the datadog.com slash radio URL. And that's a great way to get started, experience the UI and how you can lay it out. It's so slick. Datadog.com slash radio. Go there, start a free trial, get one dashboard set up, and then you get yourself a free T-shirt. Thanks to Datadog for sponsoring the Coder Radio program, and thanks to everybody who supports our show by going to datadog.com slash radio. So let's do a little M1 update. Uh, you must have a little bit better sense of the battery life at this point. Days. Days. It's out of control. I actually forgot where I put the charger. You know, I, I gosh, I got. I, I am thinking maybe I, I. I'm trying not to talk myself into buying one, and then you you need to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get the air. Get. I don't. So I did bump it to sixteen. If I, I should, if I was going to do it, I should have done it as like a Christmas gift for my wife or something, you know? Yeah, you should have done it at the end of the year for the write-off. <laughs> and I just missed the tax yeah, window, too. I wonder if those business... No, I shouldn't even. I shouldn't even do a business. I just... I, I am kind of curious about what it's generally like. And, you know, people have been telling me that it's something you really got to experience to fully understand. All right. I, I am going to tell you right now. Giving, having given it a second chance and less of like a whatever kind of eye snarky eye yeah it is my favorite computer that i have ever owned ever ever even like the nostalgia days of of, of years past i wish it ran snow leopard <laughs> by the way if you're not blacked out by now you're you're gotta be in trouble yeah that's gotta be on somebody's drinking game uh i mean yeah big sur is no snow leopard big sur is the worst part of it but just like not having to think about plugging in and this thing goes from uh, asleep to I'm in my works workspace in like almost instantaneously. That is nice. And somebody's saying, but Linux in the chat, Gavin is I'm hoping that system 76 or Dell or one of those guys can somehow match this because the hardware benefits, the speed, the no fan, no fan. It's, it's awesome. Like it, it, I literally, I like maybe I could see a world where I just work on a MacBook Air for a while because that's the for those who don't listen every week that's the model I have the MacBook Air. It's I mean it's fast enough even in Rosetta, I don't notice any noticeable slowdowns. I mean obviously the iMac Pro and the Thalio have like more RAM and dedicated GPUs. So that's a little, like certain things are a little unfair, right? Like the Thalio runs the flight simulator. The Air doesn't for obvious reasons. But as a day-to-day computer, if the apocalypse ever ends and I can go on trips again, having a laptop that one has no fan and two barely ever needs to be charged is going to be a game changer for me. Yeah, the battery life seems just like it, it would be, it would fundamentally change the way I would use the computer. Oh, and as more people have it, particularly in like the, the super Mac uh, community, a lot of the like pain points I experienced the first go around 
have just either been people know workarounds or have been resolved. And honestly, when stuff starts getting ported to ARM, I think I'm going to see additional performance increases from where I'm at now. Yeah, that's kind of the funny thing, huh? It's not even as fast as it's going to be in a year. Right. This machine, like if I can manage not to pour a goddamn martini into it or Earl Grey, depending on the week, it might actually last me more than six months. Yeah. Which is, a, you know, that's a lot of commitment for me. You know, I'm a little, <laughs> little, good, little shy. You know, I mean, you dismiss it, but that is that Linux thing is the major blocker for me. That's why I ended up going the route of the X1 and then tried out the XPS 13. And now I was I was fantasy specking myself a Galago Pro. Uh, they don't have the dedicated NVIDIA graphics until February, though. <laughs> we all know I'm a shell for System76. I'm joking, by the way, people have read it. I am not, in fact, a shell. I can't unhear the Galagos fan now. Yeah, no fan is such a big deal, too. I love that for recording, especially recording when I'm on the go. Like, even the iMac Pro. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't stop it. Stop it. I can't think about it. But that no fan deal. No fan. That no fan is a big deal because when I'm on the go, my mic is often right next to my laptop. I am super tempted to just take, because uh, I've, I mean, this is way inside how Mike's setting up his new workstation, but I have two workstations. One's the Thaleo because it does specific things, and one's uh, the iMac because I stupidly bought an iMac Pro. I sort of think the iMac Pro is just going to become the MacBook Air workstation, and that's it. What do you mean? You're not even going to use it? I keep going back and forth, but like every time the fan kicks in, a part of my soul dies. You're like, what? what is this? The 90s? What is this? Spinning rust in this thing? Yeah, it's like it's it's like my dog's hair like just caking in this piece of crap. Like you know, I don't want to tempt you because you are like super Linux guy. But it's the it's the damn consolification of computers and it's so frustrating. You know, don't 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 buy one because the fan you you will you won't go back. Right. The fanlessness, yeah. It really is it is frustrating because a lot of the performance, it really appeals to me. The battery life, the no fan, really appeals to me. I also, I am I'm pretty convinced that it's just a great chip. Like, Apple probably really knows what they're doing. And it's sort of the ultimate expression of their idea of a computer, where it's an all-in-one that they build from the ground up, hardware, OS, all of it. It's an interesting idea, but without that escape hatch of being able to load Linux on there, I'm just, like, it just wouldn't be as useful for me. It would be a slam dunk. If I was still in a corporate environment and I had a lot of meetings and calendar invites and all that kind of, you know, just stuff that you want to stay up to date with and all that and ran Slack a lot and did all that, like, I could see it for sure. But right now, like, my main production tools, they haven't been ported to M1. So there's that as well. So I'd be running a lot of stuff under Rosetta. Well, I will say, like, one of the more interesting effects that it's had on me, I'm weirdly getting used to like native Mac apps again. Mm. And I'm getting, like you mentioned Slack, I'm getting increasingly frustrated with Slack because it's such an obvious Electron app and doesn't like follow the conventions the right way. Of For those who have been listening for a long time, I was an iOS developer back when we sort of like, full, that was like full-time what I did. So I lived in the Mac for like ever before I even really did much with Linux uh, other than college, which, you know, everybody fools around with Linux in college. The like poorly done Electron apps really stand out on Mac OS where they don't on Linux to me. I think part of that is just like there's such conventions on Mac for like how the keyboard shortcuts are supposed to work. Yep. Yep. Where on Linux, everything is kind of like written in its own weird way and you just have to know the application. But like Airmail, Fantastical, and no fan. 
Yeah. I'm just going to keep saying it, Chris. Yeah, I do hear that. Imagine sitting in your robe with no fan. Yeah, you know, you know my uh, my X1 and the XPS 13, I really don't... They do have a fan, but it's very minimal. Don't hear it much. So it's, it's getting much better on the Intel side, too, with the later processors. But, um, you know, I think for me... My, I would, I mean, the battery life does sound really good. I don't know. I'd, I'd be tempted. I'd be really tempted if they had, if some of my production applications were ported. I mean, I already am tempted. I am just always tempted from a technological, like, tinkering standpoint. My one concern is how can they ladder this up to like a MacBook Pro 16? Because if they can actually do that with, with like a similar performance increase that you would have gotten from the heirs of Intel age and the 16s of, you know, the last, whatever, with the i9s, I think, right? Mm hmm. If they have the same delta of performance, those machines, why would you not get one? I mean, yeah, I, I just, I will, right? I mean, yeah. It, if I, anything where, uh, like, especially for the unfiltered show, because I do, I do all the processing myself. There's no editor or anything. Mm. Uh, you know, an hour and a half show takes forever to process. It really is a pain in the butt. Um, don't even, don't even get me started on trying to encode uh, that much video. It just is. A time it just takes forever. It's like you work all day on something, and then it's the evening, and you just want to go home, and you're sitting here waiting while your laptop just maxes out. And anything that maybe dramatically improved that time would would be pretty hard for me to say no to. I've actually thought about too, like, well, you know, the nice thing about the PC architecture is it is possible to build a just all out powerhouse PC system that outflanks anything an M1 machine could do. You know, you could you could really get like a Threadripper going, 128 gigs of RAM, four terabytes of PCIe SSD storage. You know, you could really put a nice GPU in there and get something that really cranks, maybe like an AMD 6800 series GPU in that thing. And it would blast the doors off the M1, I suspect. But, you know, I'd be looking at three $3,500, you know, four or $5,000 if it's a pre-built you know, maybe even more if it, you know, six, seven, depending on the, on the manufacturer. And it just feels like give it a year and a half and they're, and Apple's going to lap it. <laughs> uh, but it is, it has crossed my mind and it's what drew, you know, if drew was on the show right now, what he'd be telling me, I bet you is build a really powerful Linux system and do all the production tools under Linux and with a combination of wine and native tools and get 90% of the benefit with uh, without having to switch platforms, because that's the one thing that's still nice about x86, right, is if your work case demands it, you can really build a system that's really specific to you. And what I struggle with Apple now is the consolification of these machines. It's like, yeah, OK, I could I could get the same exact thing in various varieties, either with active cooling or without. And I can run one operating system and it's not even one I particularly want to run. I don't want to run Big Sur. Like, I probably wouldn't buy a PC that only ran Windows 10. And it's just that is enough friction that I haven't pulled the trigger yet. But in reality, I'm not going to build that Ryzen Threadripper system. I don't have time to do that. I don't have the funds. To, I'm not going to do it. But I like that it's still possible. And that's not an option with the M1. I mean, your best bet is adding compute via Thunderbolt, but you can't even do an eGPU at this point. At some point, we need to talk about eGPUs again, because that, that was the dream that never came. Yeah. So this is the thing, right? I, 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 and by the way, the MacBook Air that I keep salivating about was only $1,200. So I would argue that like every other year, you just buy a better one. Yeah, which, and they like, God damn it, I hate to admit it, but dang it, it's true. The price point's pretty good, right? It's, yeah, I have been thinking about selling the X1 Carbon and, and maybe getting an XPS 13 
but it's 20 the XPS 13 I'd want it to be $2200. Right. $1400 and it's a better performance and multi-day battery life and a platform that's only getting faster and has a lot of interesting features and excitement. <sighs> yeah, it's hard to justify that $2200 even if I could sell the the X1 Carbon for 1200. Well, your justification would be li- like Linux is a must have, right? Yeah. Like you you can't hop platforms like I do all the time, really. I guess you can, obviously, but you, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for other reasons. Yeah. But I, I, I worry a little bit because, like, the reason they limit to 16 gigs of RAM is because the Apple Silicon cannot handle more than that. I hope this isn't like, and it seems silly that it even could be, but like some sort of weird technical limitation they haven't been able to overcome. Because uh, that, although I take it back, because this machine has never felt slow, the MacBook Air for me. Yeah. So what do I care if it has 16 gigs of RAM or 24 or 32, right? Right. I, it may be if more things start using virtualization. If, you know, having to use virtualization for more tasks because because it is ARM and not x86, maybe that starts to become a thing. But so far, that doesn't seem to be the case, huh? Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm going to – I like following along. Uh, I tell you what. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to – I was the other – when I – because after the show, I, I kept messing around with that XPS 13, and I loaded more things on there, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is – I think I like it a lot better than the ThinkPad. I like the ThinkPad keyboard, um, and I like the weight of the ThinkPad X1 better, but the XPS 13, that 11th gen CPU, and that screen, and that build quality – Whew, it's just hard to beat that. Even as even at an i5, it's just a great config. So, I, I legitimately have just I, I hate that I'm always in this zone. I'm it's like I can never just get the right setup. I think for me the perfect maybe the perfect world is um, some sort of remote desktop solution. I don't I don't know. I feel like I'm perpetually spinning between machines. But the last thing I probably should do is introduce an M1 in there. But sometimes it feels a little tempting. I mean, it, it will be the last machine you introduce. I can guarantee that. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, I'd be putting an M1 at my desk, and it's just welcome to the M1 Action Show. Then <laughs> I'm on, yeah. Then I'm using Mac Mini Colo. <laughs> Marco Arment's coming on. Yes, I don't think so. No, uh, I do want to mention we have a new Coderly out. So if you would like to grab that, just go to uh, CoderQA.co and become a member. Or if you already are a member, it's in the RSS feed, or it's also available as a dedicated download in your members area we do these every quarter and they're a special uh, thank you to our members for helping keep the show on the road and you also get a limited ad feed when you become a coder qa member and that's at coderqa.co go follow mike on twitter he's at dumanuku his company is at the mad botter inc i'm at chris lass and the podcast network is at jupiter signal and the show is at Coda Radio Show. Is there anything else you want to mention, Mr. Dominic, before we scoot? Uh, no, everybody should get an M1 MacBook Air. <laughs> you getting a cut? You got to work. You got to work that out. Email Tim. Huh. A- <laughs> he lowered my App Store commission. Oh, there you go. Uh, also, links to some of the stuff we talked about today is uh, coder.show slash 396. You also find our contact form there, which is a big part of our show, or you can email us directly, coder at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Also, you can join our happy hour. We do this show Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and then kicks off a little bit into that, and we have a good time. You can join us over at jblive.tv. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.